it's those feelings, right? The feelings in your body that the world becomes brighter. Your feelings are more intense. And that was happening to me. I was just so excited about being alive and doing this activity. You see the world in a different way. It's like you're, you're on the mountain in a different position than you are when you're not in love. I'm Deborah Churesco. I work in glass. I would love it if you would just tell me that story of the first moment you noticed the material, when, when you first fell in love with glass. That was the magnetic pull up the ramp of the New York Experimental Glass Workshop. But when you sent me the questions, I started to think, was that really the first? I began to think about why there was magnetic pull. And is it really that momentary fate-like thing that happens? Or is it something, a collection of things that happen that you don't even know are being impregnated into your mind and being? And I, I think it's definitely that there is that collection of stimulus or events that get into one's memory, body, experiences, and that then there's a a cataclysmic moment where it all just kind of coalesces. There's one missing piece to the puzzle, and then you find the piece, and that's when the magic, quote unquote, happens. For me, I was hanging out with a bunch of artists in New York City, and we were all, for some reason, at that time, it was the 80s, into mysticism. We were like into Madame Blavatsky, the Golden Triangle, the uh, the Rosicrucians, seances, Houdini, I don't know, stuff like that. And <laughs> one of them was Sufism. So one of the mystical arts that we were like all so enamored with was Sufism. And there's a lot of turning and the mesmerization that happens, hip- hypnotic occurrences uh, you know, the roto rig from Duchamp is this like spiraling thing that goes around that causes you to go into a hypnotic trance. Well, the glass is the same exact way. <laughs> you, It's turning and turning and turning. So no wonder after I made it up the ramp, when I saw it being made, that that happened to me because I was already predisposed to mysticism. In Sufism, the bodies are literally going around in a whirling dervish. So you walk by and the spinning of the glass blowing tools and the spinning of the glass caught your eye. I just saw these cases and in those cases, there was these weird glass things. I had no clue what it was. I was like, so I got up the ramp, there was a little gallery and then there was someone gathering glass. So the first thing was the material itself. It was glowing and it was hot and it was gooey and oozy. That was uh, immediate love for me because I liked that kind of feeling that sensuality of the material was very powerful for me. So I didn't know at the time what I was struck by, but I know now. I analyzed it since then. I felt like it was an androgynous material. It was my material counterpart because I felt like I was an androgynous person. So it was just like this alignment. I asked if they gave classes or how I could get involved, and they did give classes. I was broke at that time, so I took the shortest possible class I could possibly take. Another mystical thing happened, and that was I lost my job. I was working in an office, doing some stupid thing, filing some stupid file somewhere. But the way that people are doing things now, they're getting unemployment and they're learning new things because the things that they were doing no longer are pertinent because they don't even exist. The same thing happened to me back then. I use it as an opportunity to learn a new skill, which was glass blowing. 
Welcome back to Material Feels, where we explore the intimate relationships between creative people and the materials they have fallen in love with. I'm your host, Katherine Monahan. I'm an audio storyteller and writer based in Oakland, California. I have been looking forward to this month's episode for a long time. We all have rituals for relaxing our brains and reconnecting with ourselves, especially during the pandemic. A big one for me, while working during the week and eating the same exact thing every morning at 7 a.m., on weekends, I would cook myself a luxurious hot breakfast and watch an episode of Blown Away, a Canadian reality glassblowing competition on Netflix. The show is similar to The Great British Bake Off in that it involves heat, time-sensitive ingredients, and very supportive people. It focuses on the material world in a beautiful way, and the contestants are these gritty, badass glassblowers who are so in love with glass, and also super cool to each other. Because social media is a modern-day game of tag, I actually got in touch with my favorite artist from season one, Deborah Tresco. Deborah is an incredible queer glassblowing icon based in Brooklyn. She's been working with glass for 30 years, and she's even cooler and more interesting than Blown Away led us to believe. Material Feels is sponsored by Brown Sugar Botanicals. Brown Sugar Botanicals is Oakland's black, queer, and trans-founded CBD company, proudly crafting herbal CBD-infused products grown by resilient communities. As of March 5th, 2021, Brown Sugar Botanicals has closed their online shop to tend to a new period of growth and will reopen on May 1st, 2021. In the meantime, go follow their journey on Instagram at Brown Sugar Botanicals, and make sure to follow their community updates at brownsugarbotanicals.com slash community. Before we head to Deborah's studio in New York City, what is glass? Sand, soda ash, and limestone melted at very high temperatures. While humans have mastered the art of making glass, it can also occur naturally. When lightning strikes sand, it creates a glass called fulgurite. Obsidian is formed by the rapid cooling of lava. Archaeological evidence suggests glass was first fabricated 4,000 years ago in coastal north Syria, Mesopotamia, or Egypt. Glass, like wood, wool, and most of the materials we talk about on the show, is all around us and has a huge impact on our society. Glass has been used to make knives, jewelry, money, decorative objects, and post-1800s, industrialized manufacturing processes gave us window glass, bottles, light bulbs, and mirrors, eyeglasses, food containers, telescopes, beakers, microscopes, and more recently, computer screens and high-speed internet cables. Glassblowing is known as a high-heat industry. Similar to ceramics and metalworking, it takes a lot of heat to transform the material. Glass artists combine heat, breath, to shape, sculpt, and transform glass. Glassblowing happens in a hot shop, and there are a lot of tools associated with it. Jill slash jacks, pincers, diamond shears, straight shears, long straight shear. We also have a sofietta, tagliol. That's another one we used to blow into the piece from the top when it's no longer on the blowpipe. The air gun, beeswax for the lubrication, and our oxypropane torch, cork paddles. We had a hot kiln shelf to shape the bottom when it came off the punty, and our wooden paddles. The unsung star, because they actually do a lot. A lot of old newspapers that we wet use it to shape the glass by putting water on it and the glass rides on steam. The block, and that's used for shaping the, the molten gather, the outside of it, gaining control over the floor. And then water in a bucket. So the water is very important, keeping these fragile tools uh, from sticking to the glass. The marver, that's the flat steel table. 
pipe warmer, face shields, and our reheating chamber. Our loading gloves made out of Kevlar. Blowing bench with a table and chair section with the two sort of arms that we roll the blowpipe on. And of course, the blowpipe and the punty, the stars. The blowpipe's the star <laughs> because obviously that's where we inflated. In its molten form, glass is structurally similar to liquid. It is glowing, flowing, and hot as hell. The window of opportunity for glass artists to transform the material occurs in varying degrees of this volatile state. As it cools, it becomes frozen in time. What does glass require you to be extra sensitive to when you're working with it? I, I, I equate it to learning another person's language, how they express themselves or how it will not speak your language. That's where the key, the key to learning glass is in that it's a, it's just uh, being in communion with it in a way, I think. It's constantly teaching me even to this day. I'm like, I just cannot believe I'm still learning stuff about this. What are some of the components of that language? Yes, it's definitely about moving and, and the movement comes from the heat. So the temperature is really important, but the movement, how it moves, how long you can touch it with a tool before it's frozen, shall we say, even though it's still like screaming hot to a human, it's frozen to the glass. So the earth is, has a crust and a molten center. Glass is like that. So when you touch it with a tool on the outside, the, the, it gets a crust, a, literally a microscopic one, but inside it's still moving. So learning how much you can touch it, it's really about being very efficient, learning how to be very efficient with it. It doesn't want you to touch it too much. Just little movements. That took forever for me to learn. Squeezing, coming off, letting it reheat. Uh, managing temperature and movement is really important. A lot of Deborah's work focuses on atypical beauty. Right now, she's producing a buffet line, which features glass eggs, pads of butter, tater tots, and entire turkeys. It's a series of artist editions inspired by the finale project on Blown Away, which was based on the gendering of objects and actions. What is atypical beauty, and how is Deborah inspired by it? Coming into my studio, we saw broken car windows that I've uh, put together and mounted that have little uh, sayings on them, like security alert, I'm calling the whole thing false security because of a lot of them are security stickers. <laughs> I find them over, over the years, like just walking around, when there's a broken car window on the, um, on the street, I look down and see if there's anything to to salvage from that window and make into a piece of art because it's like when I switch that destruction into something creative, I know it always hurts people when they go out and they see their car window smash. So I was like, if there's something redeeming about it, some weird beauty that comes from the destruction. Around me are my sculptures of animal feet. So it's a place of strength where the animal touches the ground. It's really the grounded part of the that being, those creatures. But also because it's just so weirdly narrative about that animal. Typically, we look at animals, or taxidermy of them anyway, their heads are out there. It's just so much more powerful than looking at things face. I guess I'm really into this things that aren't considered beautiful being beautiful. Glass is a great invitation for recreating those things with your own voice. It's like instantly beautiful in a weird way. It's such a beautiful material. Even the like weirdest beginner things, they have this beauty to them, this kind of, they're, they're capturing people's souls in a way that's putting so much effort into that one little thing. And then it's like, there it is.
it was so mobile at one point and it was so it could have been anything and then because of the steps they took and their intention it's now that yeah all their like frustration and effort <laughs> is in there how did it feel when you first started working? Like, do you remember the sensations of that class and the emotions that you had throughout? It was ridiculously humiliating, honestly. It was like, oh, God, I suck at this so hard. And it's really embarrassing. <laughs> and I consider myself fairly coordinated. I was uh, played women's sports in college. And I thought I was coordinated. Learning to coordinate the two hands and learn all the, the steps while trying to keep the thing rotating was like really confusing to, to the brain. I would say, although I'm athletic, I'm not good at dance. Is glass blowing more like a sport or is it like dance or is it both? I think it's got the combo because it has athleticism, definitely. But it also has the, the coordinated steps that are instigated by an object. I asked Deborah about the emotions she feels when she's working with glass. Well, it's st stress comes to mind first because there's so much at stake. It's expensive to work in glass. When you go in there, it's not easy to just be like, I'm going to throw like $500 out the door. But like, like you got to like try to make this thing work. Although I'm in love with the material, it, it is it is a hard material to work in. You got to have a lot of things for me anyway in, in alignment. The heat causes me, my, my body temperature to go up. And that causes me to be more stressed. So I've worked on staying calm. But sometimes it's not easy when things start going wrong. Sometimes, like, I fabricate work for other artists. And that's a particularly stressful situation because then I feel them behind me with expectations. And I think it's the expectations of myself and the other person, actually. But sometimes it's just fun when it's going right. I do have a high expectation for myself, which is, um, I think, causing most of the stress, though. And that doesn't mean it has to be... Uh, the most perfect form in the classic sense of the word, because I'm looking for something in the glass that's not that perfect form. It has to reflect the, the glass and me perfectly for me to like it. I, I feel drained at the end of the day <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> it's, well, it's physically tiring to begin with, and then it's also mentally you have to be so focused. Deborah talks about the stress of the hot shop and the expectations associated with executing a specific idea. Glassblowing can be a strenuous and expensive art form. It comes with risk. It is a process that is time sensitive and it can be hard on your body. From the way she describes it so far, it sounds like a horrendous experience I would not want to go back to day after day. And yet this is her life. Describe your first experience with glass as, as pretty negative. It was humiliating, <laughs> challenging. Yeah. Like what kept you coming back? Well, I was in love with the material. So that was... I think love happens pretty quickly, honestly, in a lot of different ways. Like when you see something, you know it's for you or not for you. I've tried this thing where you grow love for things. Growing love to me is like something that doesn't happen very often. So like, for example, I've had sushi many times and I've tried the sea urchin, the pasty orange stuff. And friends of mine are like, oh my God, this stuff is amazing. But no, it doesn't work. Didn't work for me. Didn't. Nope. How did you know you were in love? It's those feelings, right? The feelings in your body that the world becomes brighter. Your feelings are more intense. And that was happening to me. I was just so excited about being alive and doing this activity. You see the world in a different way. It's like you're, you're on the mountain 
in a different position than you are when you're not in love. I kept trying to work through this in my mind. Many of us go to great lengths to avoid pain, suffering, or conflict. Our society paints love as a fairy tale, as a rush of overwhelmingly positive emotions. What I'm hearing from Deborah and from the material world in general is that sometimes the conversations between maker and material are not easy. Sometimes they take forever. You are first trying to master a complex skill, then trying to communicate something with that skill. Getting to the same page when the two of you are not on the same page takes work. The same is true, I think, for love between people. A few months ago, a friend, actually Redwood, the bartender from episode four, gifted me a book all about love by Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks is a cultural critic and talented writer whose analysis of society is intersectional, radical, and straightforward in a way I really appreciate. I want to share the way Hooks chooses to define love, which spoke to me both on a material, personal, and interpersonal level. To truly love, we must learn to mix various ingredients, care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, and trust, as well as honest and open communication. She describes it as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. I think the bell hooks definition and Deborah's experience with glass checks out for me. I particularly like the word extend. To me, that's the labor of being vulnerable, of pushing yourself to grow, to reach some kind of flow or connection. I think that love is that challenge, that growth, in combination with strong positive emotions and fresh coordinates, as Deb points out. Deborah has also mentioned she takes a feminist approach to glass and that being in the studio feels empowering to her. The empowerment comes from not just this moment that I exist in now, but the whole history I have with the material and of being me in the world. Just a queer woman that years ago just got a lot of uh, negative feedback for being me. And it was hard to just walk out the door and get harassed because of how I looked or something. And that's part of what I'm talking about, too, not just the glass blowing floor. The whole experience of being alive and walking to the studio, traveling to the studio, and then having to exist and, and hide parts of myself in a way, because I, I would say that we are changing, that the world is changing excruciatingly slowly. But in my opinion, the stupidity that still permeates is just uh, heartbreaking that these issues don't change. Um, in fact, sometimes regress, like we saw recently with the, oh God, I can't even say, the last administration. That was really causing flashbacks of what used to be, like how hard we fought for certain rights. And that comes into my feelings of being on the glass floor too, because back then there was a lot of, I think, the hiding parts of myself to make the people that could give me knowledge feel better. It's they, they, They're centering themselves. It's just this mindlessness of how you approach dealing with another person, like stupid jokes about me riding a Harley Davidson or something with a vibrator and like stupid shit like that as a joke, but it's hateful jokes, you know, stuff like that. And I'd have to be like, ha, 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 that's so funny. I feel like there are these patterns that come up that certain people are subject to that other people who have historically been in power or been majority don't even realize that that pattern is just, it's like a thousand cuts. Yeah. And it still happens. I'm like, are you kidding me with all this awareness around us? 
Deborah points out a few things here. First, it is harder for some human beings to exist than others in our society. Walking to work feels dangerous because of how you present, how people read you. For trans, non-binary, and many queer folks, the way you walk, dress, wear your hair, present yourself, or don't present yourself is still somehow controversial, a threat. A threat to gender norms, heteronormativity, patriarchal dominance, you name it. Your identity is seen as dangerous, and then you are in danger. I have experienced this on public transport, depending on how I'm presenting as a gender-fluid person. Deborah and I can speak to these lived experiences. Then there are the experiences we cannot speak to, but we need to acknowledge. The reality for black and brown folks. The history of sundown towns. A society where ICE exists and there are camps at the border. The reality for Asian Americans with the upswing in hate crimes and discrimination since COVID. Elders walking on the street from point A to point B, verbally or physically assaulted. This is not new pain. While people who have been violently categorized by white supremacy as visually different, also known as marginalized identities, while people are connected in their struggles, there are acute histories we need to memorize, learn, and pass on. For example, I mentioned sundown towns. If you're not familiar with the term, sundown towns are all-white municipalities that exclude non-whites with a combination of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, or violence. Traveling in this country was and still is very dangerous for people. So dangerous that from 1936 to 1966, there was an annual guidebook called the Negro Motorist Green Book, also known as the Green Book, a guide for black motorists to try and stay safe. Sure, there's no longer a green book published every year, but the violence, discrimination, and trauma has not gone away. I mention this specific example because uh, it takes a quick Google search to learn about it. And there are countless examples like this for any marginalized group in the United States. This is a pervasive issue that touches every part of society, even in off-the-beaten-path, niche, artsy-fartsy communities. So in addition to taking up space and navigating those dynamics in the public sphere, Makers who are seen as different are still fighting for both representation and equity. Deborah shares more about how being in the studio feels for her. I mean, there's different motivations throughout my career. When originally, when I saw people working, um, I was like, as, uh, I mean, men, they were all men. I was like, I can do way better than that so easily. They're like, oh my God. So I knew, I just knew that I could do better than that. So that was a driving force. And that was like, <laughs> but that changed. Um, I was like, I don't need to prove that point anymore. I did that. Now it's just about enjoying. Like, let's take the victory lap. Let's celebrate <laughs> being there. And and now it's truly, I've been thinking about um, getting other people involved that weren't the typical demographic of the hot shop. How I can directly impact that is really important to me. And I've started to figure that out. The, the world has changed in glass. There's many more um, different people. But the one thing that's still missing is a lot of diversity. There's many more women. There's a smattering of queer people. There's not um, huge amounts. Oddly enough, I was like, where are they? I mean, I'm like, wow, is this going to happen in my lifetime? I realize I can impact that now. So me being there, represent it proved to me representation wasn't enough. I have heard from many people that like, of seeing you in there, like I hated going in there until I saw you in there. But back then, like when I first started, I was like, so there's this thing called machismo, right? And I was like, can women be machismo? I, I do talk a lot about crafts 
being the art itself, that I'm part of the art, like in some way, that the whole being on the floor is part of the art, the whole just standing there and taking up the space is. But I think now I realize that um, a definitive action of some sort is necessary to make this go faster. If you are still having trouble believing this, or if you have family and friends who have trouble believing these barriers permeate every aspect of our society, let's point them to a little clip from one of my favorite movies, My Cousin Vinny. Because movies are fun, and people sometimes believe movies more than they believe life. I don't know. It's a little phenomena. We, we love it. We love celebrity. Anyone who has seen My Cousin Vinny hundreds of times points thumbs and face this guy knows that simultaneously infuriating and gratifying moment in court when the prosecutor doesn't think that Lisa, Vinny's girlfriend, can possibly be an expert mechanic. She's loud, fashionable, and, duh, a woman. But finally, when her expertise is undeniable and she testifies that only a car with an independent rear suspension and positive traction could have made those tire marks, which rules out the 1964 Buick Skylark. Mm, so satisfying, but also frustrating that she's not taken seriously for like the first half of her testimony. Also courts, also laws. Yikes. There's lots of movie clips I could have chosen. I just, I really, I really just like doing the Lisa impression. So just, yeah. Deborah points out that representation, while important, is not enough for her now. Yes, there is social commentary in her work, and navigating the world as who she is in the hot shop makes a difference. As we talk more about what it's like to be in the hot shop and how Deborah operates with her team, another opportunity for action stands out. I've been doing a series of objects I call the Buffet Collection, and I've started to take income from that that's going to finance me just introducing people to duplicate the experience I had. Because I, I actually was mentored by someone eventually. And so it was access and, and knowing, knowing the thing was here. So I want to do that for other people. And whether they take it somewhere or not, it's up to them. It might grow into something longer term or maybe an organization of some sort is the next step for the longer term. I might just be the intro person. How can I be more effective? with my platform, and I thought about it with what I do. That got me thinking about how just going for it is the way I want to do it. I'm curious about not only the dance and the athleticism with the material and the tools, but then also your communication and relationship with your assistants. Yeah, I don't think I am like really doing the typical maestro to assistant relationship. When Deborah says the word maestro here, she's talking about a tradition of individual artists being the expert and disseminating information down to apprentices who spend quite a long period of time learning from them. It's sort of like a one-way street, trickle-down effect with this artist person put on a bit of a pedestal. I sort of reinvented it a little bit where I do accept a lot of dialogue from the people that help me and I depend on them. It's a uh, a slightly different way of working where I'm not just the one with all the answers. We're all the maestro collectively on the team. We're really part of the one bigger organism. It's not so authoritative. It sounds like a lot of your values, like your life values, you're integrating them really intensely with your process. I feel really good about the people I'm working with and our relationship, the give and take, and that it's mutually beneficial. 
It felt so good to talk to someone at this stage in their career and life, to learn from her wisdom and see that growth and transformation happens at all stages of a creative relationship. I think about my own mentors who have shaped my perspective, strong, powerful, outspoken, wonderfully weird people who I'm still in contact with regularly, my chosen creative family. There's something very special about having a mentor who shares a part of your identity. Not only is it common ground for those of us not used to seeing people who look and talk like us or people with goals and interests similar to our own successfully living out their dreams, it's a radical type of self-love reflected in the other. Spoiler alert, my mentors are outspoken older women with a taste for the theatrical and lifelong careers in the arts. Who would have thought? Without their influence, I'm not sure I would have the confidence and strength to be where I am today. The mentor-mentee relationship is such an integral piece of the creative world, one that has literally co-created industries and built out our society like, like literally physical buildings. It's not conceptual. It's not theoretical. Mm, delicious. Who are your mentors? Have you asked them the burning questions on your mind? And if they've passed on, how do you feel close to them still? What insight and lessons impact your life? And who do you mentor? Who could benefit from your life experience? Why not share it? Sideways. Okay, go. Uncap. Cap. Cap. That's the hot shop in action. Maybe a little inflation there. There is a dance associated with glassblowing. Part performance, part sport. If you're not familiar with glassblowing, just imagine that you've got this molten ball of material and you've got a certain amount of time with which to work it. All the while, you're in conversation with other people on your team moving through the process in concert. Associate producer Liz DeLise did what we call in the business a tape sync. They went to Brooklyn Glass, a hot shop where Deborah has a studio, and they joined the fray. They actually put a phone around their neck and FaceTimed me, so I was kind of there too. It felt like a scene from the Born Identity series. I don't know if you've seen that, but it was uh, very shaky camera work. And I felt like I was there running with them and bobbing and weaving and witnessing this amazing demo that Deborah and her assistant Allie so generously offered to do for us. So... Zebra is heating up a paddle. Oh, it's on fire now. Oh my God. It's like the most rock and roll of all the art forms. <laughs> As Deborah and her assistant began working with the material, heating it up, cooling it down, sculpting it, blowing with their breath, using various tools to change it, they were also chatting chatting about how tools over time have been renamed to be more gender inclusive, talking about the history of glass blowing and various techniques. Also, communicating in very direct ways. Sideways. Okay, go. Uncap. Cap. Cap. Maybe a little inflation there. Ready? Oh, gosh. A heat again? Everything's just falling all over the place. That's pretty keggy, Deb. My name is Allie Feeney. Um, I work for Deb as her assistant, both in the hot shop, but also in her studio with cold process of things. For Deb, I mean, I think we've started in either October or November. COVID made things a little blurry, like when things started, but in the fall. So I went to Alfred University for my bachelor's degree. Uh, they don't concentrate. You can focus on something, but your degree is bachelor's of fine arts. Uh, but I did focus in glass and printmaking. And then I got my master's degree at the University of Texas at Arlington, uh, where I studied with Justin Ginsburg and really honed in a lot of my artist practice there. Um, so it was a really wonderful experience. So we're going to take our first gather on a punty rod. That does not have a hollow 
It's not a hollow rod. They're making a poached egg vessel, a blown form that is translucent, white, with a yellow egg yolk pressed into the center. Eggs are a big part of Deborah's buffet line. She jokes that she's now synonymous with them. It was a beautiful thing to witness. It was kind of surreal for me. I was actually in Liz's ears in their headphones, and I would chat with them and be like, oh, get that sound. What, what does that mean? What's happening? And they would respond to me as Deborah chatted with her assistant. The four of us were involved in an ethereal orbit centering around the glass. You might hear Deb and I use words like let it cool off, let it get hot. It's all relative to the material. So cold is like 900 degrees. This is called the punty. punty. So, I don't know the origin of that word, but it's just a uh, rod that it doesn't have a hole through it, like, unlike the blowpipe. So, it's for gathering solid bits of glass. I'm just heating the end so that the glass will stick to it. If I go in with just a cold metal rod, the glass won't stick to it. So, it has to come to a temperature. So, you can see the end's a little red. That's how I know that this metal is now hot enough to so the gooey glass to goo onto it. <laughs> and we're just gonna cool it so I can hold it down a little lower and have better dexterity. Make sure I got a really dense yolk. I don't want a transparent yolk. Knowing your color, every color is idiosyncratic. You have to sort of become a maestro of every color. <laughs> some are stiff, some are soft. So now I'm letting this get stiffer so that it can support the 2000 degree um, Fahrenheit glass that's going to go over it. it doesn't just collapse. So a lot of the things that we do to finish this piece will be here. Sometimes it'll be at the Marver, which is the other steel table we use to shape the glass. It was so fun to be a part of it, and the stress that Deborah had mentioned earlier wasn't really apparent to me, but she pointed out why. Stress? Remember, I was going to tell you. <laughs> I'm actually having fun because I don't feel stressed because I'm enjoying telling you what I'm doing. So it's there we go. I'm gonna fire polish that. Okay, let's do it. I think I need a little more articulation. Knife blade, flip, cap, cap. spoon. Blade. Spoon blade. Yeah. What, what happened? So the plan deviates. The yolk of the egg that Deborah was sculpting with Allie exploded. But in glass blowing, unplanned events are, are pretty common, I think. The egg yolk dropped off the punty into the furnace and caught fire. Well, let's just do what we can do. We'll make another one. In less than a minute, Deborah reacted, touched base with her assistant, and they decided to make another. Yolk number two. Here it comes. Ready? Ready. Here we go. My favorite part was when they debriefed at the end. There's no blame, no excuses, no shame. They talk about the hiccup and walk through what happened. I say hiccup, but seriously... <laughs> The thing that we were making caught on fire and exploded. I can we just can we just sit with that? How often do you worry about making a mistake? Any any kind of mistake? Your mind fixates on the dire consequences that will undeniably follow. This situation gave both Deb and Allie an opportunity to live out the worst possible scenario of something together. And no one got in trouble. No one got yelled at. They problem solved for next time and moved on. I'm not saying every creative relationship is like this. Like, there's toxic relationships between people trying to create something together. But this kind of relationship, when you do find it, the people in places where we feel safe making mistakes, that's where we want to be. That, that's where I want to be, at least. 
When I told Deborah how much it meant to me to get to talk to her, I got kind of emotional. Are you stroking my ego? <laughs> no, I have been I have been looking forward to this conversation for like six months, um, and everyone who who I know who in my life like knows about today. When I first started watching Blown Away, I was like before even like the first episode of the first season, I was like I want to interview Deborah. And then like, you know, second, second episode, I was like, yeah, oh, she's the one. Yeah, I want to interview her. And then when you <laughs> won, I was like. I feel so happy that I won that now. It was so important, not just to me, received. I know I told you about the hate mail, but I received so many people telling me that what I did was it gave them, I don't know how, but like exactly, but it gave them purpose. It said, they were on the edge of not doing art or they women in atypical fields to a lot of queer people reaching out to me saying, just thank God you want. And also just like your radical way of being, your political way of being um, was was so was such a pull. Um, so I, I think everyone who identifies in that camp like felt seen. One of the things I was thinking in that occupying is from Occupy Wall Street, which I witnessed down there on Wall Street, um, and how they occupied space, and that gave them power. And I'm like, well, I'm occupying space too, so I should have power. <laughs> so, it's like, so that's where it came from. It was com coming from that kind of the Occupy movement in a way. Like, I'm like, that it was influential in how I thought about it. I think, and that that is political. That who's in a space is political or who isn't in a space is political. And crafting, honestly, is also political. And uh, how it's been disregarded as something lesser and how it's been plucked by colonized uh, societies, like other cultures where crafting is the primary form of art. And that's just plucked by Western society. And then we, this happens to me all the time because I'm a fabricator. My skill is plucked by these people that call themselves designers and so I see it happening to me. I see it happening to other uh, cultures without any credit. It's like the anonymous other maker person that you never give credit behind. And this is an old school, old world, Western designer way of working. Watching someone work, being like, that's what I want to make. And I, it's repulsive to me. <laughs> it's exploitative. As a glassblower in 2021, Deborah is not the first fabricator to observe this. In fact, our entire concept of craft, bohemian, hippie, what's cool and stylish, the artisanal line at the big box store in aisle 27, originates from cultures outside of Western culture. It's a form of cultural appropriation. I'd like to share a quote from an essay I recently read by Julie Hollenbach, a queer settler artist, scholar, and cultural worker based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The essay is titled Moving Beyond a Modern Craft, Thoughts on White Entitlement and Cultural Appropriation in Professional Craft in Canada. It also applies to the United States. Often, because non-Western cultures don't place the same value on authorship or the identity of the artist, the work is made anonymously or collectively. Western people may make the mistake of assuming that it is unattributed, that it doesn't belong to anyone, and is therefore fair game to be taken or used. However, many indigenous societies understand their cultural objects and practices to belong to everyone in their community, past, present, and future. 
This brings me back to the concept of mentoring as a kind of antithesis. Passing knowledge forward. Growing a creative culture collaboratively as an act of love. To me, it feels like the polar opposite of the violent, extractive practices of colonial rule. To me, it's centering relationships that are about consent and mutual growth rather than profit, dominance, or ownership. Like, talking about that nonprofit organizations, like, oh, they're trying to diversify the board or they're trying to bring other people to the table, but I don't need their table. That's what I realize. I need a different table. Different table made of something different, maybe doesn't even look like a table. It's like, like, that's what I'm kind of coming into the, uh, it's a revelation to me. I think a lot of people um, in different avenues and different ways are having iterations of that revelation. My career is a slow burn. My, um, it's a slow burn because I really went for technical in the beginning, then just let everything simmer, simmering, simmering, simmering until something's, <laughs> it's like, and now is, and now is the time. Like now I am in the spotlight and now I can, and I realize, like I said, representation is one thing, but the voice is another. It's my time to do this, whatever it is. So I, I'm just at the beginning Last episode, I was inspired by paper artist Zydevecha and the world she creates with her material. It made me think about what world I'm creating when I'm working on the show. I often visualize a theater where all of us are experiencing the story together. Sometimes I'm in the audience, on stage or backstage, as long as I am part of the show in some way. I call it my happy place. I think there are a range of happy places that we go to, real or imagined, to find peace. And I think in this spectrum of happy places, there is one that makes us feel a lot like ourselves. That is what the theater visualization does for me. I've also been thinking a lot about core values and how values that are the most important to us can be embedded in a particular happy place. When Deborah glanced up that ramp in Little Italy and glass caught her eye, she discovered a mystical portal to her happy place in real life. In the hot shop, I felt I was seeing her live out her values with the way she communicated with the material, with her assistants, and with her guests, Liz, myself. Okay, have I totally lost you with this core values talk? Do you know what your core values are? I get it. Not everyone is BFFs with a handful of therapists, and not everyone lives in the Bay Area, where if I had a nickel for every time someone mentions values, boundaries, or needs, I would be able to afford breakfast sandwiches out here. I recently realized these buzzwords were everywhere, and I wasn't really sure what values were. Uh, It's this term that's thrown around, and I think I always confused it with morals or ethics. Turns out that's not what values are at all. Turns out there are so many values you can choose from to prioritize, like friendship or honesty or creativity. And if you're clear on what values you feel are most important to you, I think it makes it a little bit easier to pick and choose what to surround yourself with. I molded over and identified my six core values using the happy place I shared with you. Extremely connected. Laugh out loud. Contributing. Present. Creative choices. Freedom of surrender. I came up with mindfulness, humor, connection, contribution, creativity, and solitude. Let's try to find your happy place if you haven't already figured it out. Think of a time you felt seen by the people around you or an environment you felt at peace in. The monologue in your head fell away. There wasn't any fog. Everything was very clear. In fact, maybe everything felt brighter. What were you prioritizing in that moment? 
I think that memory you have pulled up is a version of a happy place. I think with a combination of internal drive and community support, people can conjure that happy place in real life over and over, pouring energy into structures that eventually begin to function with more and more ease, creating a momentum that, even when your cup is empty, keeps you in touch with what matters to you most. In Deb's studio, I felt like she had followed that thread. She was drawn to an experience. She discovered love. She keeps working at it, even when it's stressful, building not only a relationship with the material, but a relationship with herself, and with a global community of glassblowers, lady glassblowers, queer glassblowers, gender nonconforming, non-binary, trans glassblowers. I think of it as a well-traveled path. And even when it gets dark and overgrown, you still know the way because you've been practicing whatever that practice is for you. This philosophy around creative practice parallels how mindfulness can change the brain. Mindfulness is an intentional state where you are aware of the present moment without judgment or analysis. Over the past decade, research has emerged around mindfulness and neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to adapt, heal, change, and grow. The paths we travel in our minds are not just woodsy metaphors. They are neurological pathways we tread over and over. And the brain is mutable, much like a material. By traveling certain paths over and over, we can alter our mood, learn a new skill, or turn rituals into reflex. Mindfulness and creative practice have a lot in common, especially when you learn the love language of your material and get in a flow state. I wonder if forming a relationship with the material world, engaging with creative practices, and expressing ourselves is a way to conjure a value-based happy place, and then add in the radical act of mentoring as a way to invite others in. Not only are your well-traveled paths accessible to you, you are sharing that wisdom with other travelers. So whether you are the steward of that particular path or a first-time traveler, you're not alone in the woods. Material Feels is produced by me, your host, Catherine Monahan. I'm a writer and audio storyteller with a background in art education. I live in Oakland, California. Associate producer Liz Delise composes original music just for the show. This episode features sounds from www.freesound.org as well. The show is a labor of love, and your contributions mean the world. Here's how you can support us. Share the show with your friends and your family. Overshare it. Just just do it. Just just spill. Spill the, spill the tea, the juice, the milk. Just spill everything. You can follow the show on Instagram, at Material Feels, and find us on Patreon, and donate or send money directly to me. And here is an original piece of music composed by Liz, inspired by paper as a sculptural material from our interview with artist Zai Devecha. Watch it, will my life take action?